if you turned the sound off for a Jacques Tati movie, it would be um, maybe interesting, but you'd be losing so much, maybe half of the humor. The humor comes in with the sound, and um, so there's sound effects, but for Jacques Tati, every sound effect is an opportunity uh, for humor. I receive a lot of lessons from dogs. If you watch... From dogs? If, dogs. Yeah. If you watch the dog, they are the only one who, first, they don't make any politics. Second, when they want, they want to, to pee, if it's a, a new candelabra or an old one or a vieux reverbère, they are paying the same way. They, they, didn't, they didn't have any lesson to receive from the new engineers. Then they always say hello to each other the, the, the way you know yourself. <laughs> and they didn't change. So I, I do want to uh, follow and understand. And they are for me marvelous comedians. All you Ronians and Rissabigas. What can I tell you? I just came back from grocery shopping. Welcome to episode 14 of All You Ever Think About Is Sparks, the only and therefore best podcast solely devoted to the life and music of Ron and Russell Male, a.k.a. Sparks. As always, I am your host, Christian Huey. The countdown to the release of A Steady Drip, Drip, Drip is in its final thrilling stretch. As of this recording, there are 15, one, five short days until the album's digital release on May 15. Uh, recall that for reasons related to shipping and coronavirus, um, the uh, physical release is going to be pushed back until July. Now, even though the COVID-19 pandemic has hindered Ron and Russell from kicking off a traditional media campaign to promote the new album. It hasn't kept them off social media. It has not kept them from doing interviews remotely. And it certainly has not uh, prevented a few music journalists from penning universally positive reviews about the new album, even though it's not released to the public yet. The upcoming June 2020 issue of Uncut Magazine in particular was effusive in its praise, giving a 9 out of 10 and calling it, quote, filled to the brim, quote, filled to the brim with the usual abundance of trademark lyrical zingers, tenacious earworm melodies, and stylistic zigzags. Both Ron and Russell have done interviews in the last couple of weeks, both for terrestrial radio and for podcasts. Uh, do check out Consequence of Sounds podcast to hear one with Russell and the Hard Times' podcast for the latest with Ron. Speaking of Ron, you will be delighted to know that Ron has taken to social media and has been delivering a handful of videos featuring unaccompanied lyric readings uh, from Spark Songs, both old and new. 
So far, you can see Ron deliver in his inimitable deadpan the lyrics from new songs Please Don't Fuck Up My World and Self-Effacing, as well as the 1994 classic Let's Go Surfing. Here's a clip from that last one right now. Rain is pouring down in our landlocked town. Skies are always gray. Let's go surfing, babe. Somewhere there is hope, somewhere there are dreams far from soot and smoke. Let's go surfing, babe, tonight. As we look at the moon and the stars from our room with security bars, there's a westerly wind that is blowing both our minds and both our feet walk through sand that's as white as the snow. Past the people named Kelly and Joe who have nothing in common with anyone we know. We know they're too Wagnerian, too Shakespearean, too impossible. Let's go surfing, babe. Oh, that Ron! What a party animal. Uh, you can catch Ron's lyrically speaking videos on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and Sparks' official Facebook page. Now, if you're like me, you're incredibly handsome. Now, uh, you're absolutely chomping at the bit. Uh... Where is that champing? I've always wondered about that. To hear the new album. Now, you better believe that I will be recording some kind of special uh, episode all about A Steady Drip, Drip, Drip once the album is out to the general public. Until then, stay safe, wash your hands, and you should probably go ahead and wash them again because I don't think you've been doing it right. Hey, I'm just trying to be helpful. That's all. Not judging. And now, dance, goddammit. It's all you ever think about is Sparks. Jacques Tati and Sparks' paths crossed, thanks to the social engineering of one Peter Zumsteg. Zumsteg was in charge of marketing for the European arm of Island Records. And as a real social butterfly, he seemed to have connections to the biggest celebrities on the continent at that time. While preparing for their November 30, 1974 concert at uh, Paris Olympia, Ron and Russell mused to Zumsteg offhandedly while talking about the future that they would like to try their hand at acting, for reasons of both personal ambition and to challenge audiences' perceptions of what it meant to be in a rock band. It's not clear who dropped the name first, but when Jacques Tati was brought up, Zumsteg, sensing that Sparks and the 67-year-old Tati were kindred spirits, offered to introduce the French film legend to the band, to the astonishment of Ron and Russell. After making a quick call to Tati's assistant, Zumsteg arranged a lunch date between Tati and the band, the entire band, not just Ron and Russell. Although they weren't the only members of Sparks who were familiar with Tati's work, Ron and Russell were particularly starstruck. As Ron described in 2006, We were under no illusions to the relative genius of Tati versus Sparks, but we kept our mouths shut and a meeting was set up. Tati and Sparks got on like a house on fire. Although he was too old to have any interest in or knowledge of rock music, Tati appreciated Sparks' posture as consummate outsiders who enjoyed winking at their audience and pointing a finger at their own performative artifice. 
Although it's not clear if Tati got around to listening to much of their music, what Tati would have found were songs that shared a similar sensibility to his films. Ron's songs tended to magnify the everyday conflict between modern man and the people and situations in the world around him. It was a short line one could draw between Ron's go-to narrator archetype, the bewildered, frustrated, and put-upon-every-man, to Tati's hapless, luckless Monsieur Hulot character. As it happened, Tati had been ruminating on an idea for a new film and was convinced Ron and Russell should play starring roles in it. Although he had yet to work out a script, he was steadfast about the movie's title, Confusion. Confusion was to be Tati's masterwork, a postmodern film about film's gauche, unruly, but fashionable younger sibling, television. Monsieur Hulot would, of course, appear in the first part of the movie, but Tati planned to then shift the spotlight to Ron and Russell, who would play uh, an American television director and his technician. There would be frequent breaking of the fourth wall and lots of playing with the forms of film and TV. Tati was obsessed with exposing the artifice of film. Ron and Russell were fully on board. Tati plus Ron and Russell were so serious about seeing their project into fruition, they sent out a joint press release on March 17, 1975. Uh, the release began like this. Comic genius Jacques Tati has joined with Sparks' creative spark plugs Ron and Russell Mail for a major motion picture, tentatively titled Confusion, and planned for filming later this year with Tati and the Mail's co-starring. The Mail Brothers and Tati would meet several more times throughout 1975 and even appeared on Swedish TV together. But the meetings grew less frequent as the year carried on. Ultimately, the film was never made, and Tati died in 1982 while he was still fundraising for the ill-fated project. Ron and Russell had even composed and recorded a theme song uh, in 1975 also, titled Confusion. Uh, now, that track ended up back on the shelf after the indiscreet sessions, uh, resurfacing a year later on 1976's Big Beat. Meanwhile, the unrealized potential of a Tati male collaboration remained a deeply felt regret on the part of Ron and Russ. How ironic that after 30 years as a musician, Ron later lamented, my sole regret is not being able to have appeared in a French film, a Tati film. Sad to say it, but that is the end of the Tati part of this story. So, we've hit a narrative cul-de-sac, and let's just make a U-turn and head back to Paris in November of 1974. Now, the crowd that greeted the band that night at the Olympia gig were absolutely hysterical with enthusiasm. One fervent young Parisian woman even managed to crack a couple of Russ's ribs when she bear-hugged him after the show. If England liked Sparks, France greeted them with near-hero worship. The Mail Brothers would take note of French audiences' high regard for Sparks. The show in Paris put an auspicious capper on Sparks' exhausting 26-night, 26-city tour and was the only show outside of the UK that they played during that ambitious run in November. 
After a Christmas show in Leeds, Sparks announced that they wouldn't be back in England for almost a year. They were gearing up to tour the U.S. and continue making inroads in their homeland. As it happened, Sparks' U.S. tour in 1975 was pared down quite a bit from their initial ambitions. Sticking mainly to the two coasts, Sparks played a handful of venues, graced the covers of some local arts and entertainment weeklies, and made a few television appearances, including a return to American Bandstand, where they had last been seen shaking hands with Dick Clark all the way back in 1972. They played some dates in February and March, and would then head back to England for a spell to begin album number five, and would return to the U.S., for a few more shows in May and June. Although none of those American shows sold out, uh, many new fans were born in those performances, including, at one New York show, one Jeffrey Ross Hyman, soon to be better known as Joey Ramone. Sparks's abbreviated American tour may have left less of an impression on American popular culture of the moment than they had hoped for, but the culture sure seemed to have made an impression on them. In a move that would telegraph where Sparks would venture thematically on their gestating new album, the band and Island Records hosted a couple of after-parties in the most American consumerist way possible. By renting out a Burger King and later an International House of Pancakes with heaps of Whoppers with cheese and Rudy Tooty Fresh and Fruity Breakfast plates on offer to confused invitees. In case if anyone was unsure if the folks in Island's marketing department were in on the joke, the invitations to the Burger King party stressed, quote, black tie optional. Now, thought experiment, just imagine for a moment what the Bacchanalian post-show festivities for your typical rock band in 1975 would have looked like. I think uh, Keith Moon era The Who or Led Zeppelin on those very same nights. Now, hold that image in split screen against a room of plastic tray toting soda-sipping folks, all seated in orderly fashion on vinyl upholstered booths, most likely steadily losing their alcohol buzz. It was either the least rock and roll move Sparks could have made, or the most. If rock and roll is rebellion, Sparks took gleeful delight in rebelling against the accepted notions of rock star behavior. While back in London, cooling their heels, Sparks' newest album was taking shape. Ron and Russell told Muff Winwood at the outset that they were hungry for a new direction, a new sound, and wanted to stretch beyond the confines of what a five- or six-piece rock band could deliver. Ron and Russ had considered the trajectory of the Beatles' career, often, when planning Sparks' next moves, and they had decided it was time to create Sparks' own Sgt. Peppers. Incidentally, our own Sergeant Peppers, quote-unquote, was also Brian May's description of Queen's album from that very same year, A Night at the Opera. Anyway, where Sergeant Peppers was meant to be both a celebration and a critique of modern British society by the Beatles, this new album by Sparks would be distinctly American, where the Beatles would mine the previous century or so of British musical styles for inspiration, such as Music Hall or Skiffle, Sparks would look to American forms like Big Band Jazz, Tin Pan Alley, and high school marching bands. And they aimed to be just as ambitious as the Beatles had been when it came to musical arrangements. But what they lacked was their own George Martin to orchestrate everything, literally. 
in most cases. Sensing he was out of his depth as a producer, Winwood tapped his old friend Tony Visconti to take the reins. In 1975, Visconti had not yet quite grown into the industry legend he would later become. Still, he already had an impressive and impressively varied portfolio. Today, the most salient part of Visconti's legacy is that of David Bowie's most impactful and successful collaborator and interpreter. And by 1975, he had already produced one of Bowie's seminal earlier works, 1970's The Man Who Sold the World, and he was hot off the recording of Bowie's plastic soul reinvention, Young Americans. But Bowie aside, Visconti also handled production duties for other well-known acts like T-Rex, Badfinger, and Straubs. He had earned a reputation as a skilled arranger and could work with classical and jazz musicians and their instruments, as well as rock and roll's primary colors. If you were going for an expansive sound, and big, I mean really big, Tony Visconti was your guy. Commenting on his appointment by Muff Winwood to work with Sparks, Visconti offered, I think the world of Muff as a producer, but he told me he had one trick getting a good sound on the instruments, and then double-tracking everything. That's pretty much how most people made records in those days, so he couldn't do what they wanted. It was out of his realm. He didn't work with string players and brass players and all that. Having worked with the creatively restless and ambitious Bowie, Visconti was uh, sympathetic to artists who wanted a creative and aesthetic rebirth. And as with Bowie, Visconti found Ron and Russell to be intellectual kindred spirits. A native Brooklynite, Tony Visconti also empathized with Ron and Russell's unique perspective as fellow American transplants living in England. All this respect and feelings of simpatico were mutual. The male brothers discovered right away that Tony Visconti would be the one they could trust to take the sounds and the instrumentation that they held in their heads and translate that all into the bolder, brasher, denser direction on record that they wanted their new music to take. Visconti would sometimes ask, Are you sure you want to go all the way in that direction? And what he meant by that was, was the band willing to put forth the effort, the time, and the money into scoring parts for various outside musicians to play? For Ron and Russ, burning with restless creativity and and flush with cash from a record label that backed the massively popular Sparks to the hilt, the answer was always an enthusiastic yes. Visconti was impressed by Ron and Russell's aspirations to create high art, and he became fond of calling their repertoire thinking man's rock, quote-unquote. He later explained, Russell and Ron Mayle are truly avant-garde. They're both ex-art students, like so many rock stars, but they really are artists, and they wanted to make a completely different left-field bizarre album. Although the recording of the new record would unshackle Ron and Russell creatively, from the very start, it was easy to see that the other members of Sparks would play diminished roles from before, and that was bound to create friction in the studio. Wearing its audaciousness and indulgence on its sleeve, literally, the new album was given the appropriate title, Indiscreet. Recording began on March 17 in Visconti's home studio in Shepherd's Bush, West London. 
As one of the first home recording setups, it was a much tighter space than Sparks were used to. Tony had a studio downstairs the size of a phone booth, Ron recalled. There was no room for a bass amp, so speakers had to be built into the walls. It was incredibly tight, but it gave you the feeling you could concentrate without anyone knowing what you were doing. Sparks may have been saving Island Records a quid or two by recording much of Indiscreet in Visconti's home, but they would have to use the much larger spaces at Ramparts and AIR Studios to record the bigger arrangements. Uh, Uncoincidentally, AIR, short for Associated Independent Recording, was a studio founded by none other than George Martin himself. No doubt, this fact was brought to the attention of the Mail Brothers, who must have been rubbing their hands together with glee. The budget for the new album was extravagant, thanks to Island Records now considering Sparks to be the cash cow the label had been seeking for years. They granted Ron and Russell carte blanche to fulfill their ambitions on record, something Sparks wouldn't enjoy again until they built their own studio in the mid-80s. Still, Ron and Russ felt it prudent, from a time management perspective, to have their songs ready to go before setting foot in the studio. Ron demoed out a couple of dozen songs for the record. While all, or nearly all, of those demos wound up as final products, only 13 tracks would make the album's final cut. The rest would either find homes on B-sides, or would linger in obscurity until disinterred for inclusion on CD remasters some decades later. Most of the recordings featured session musicians, which got costly fast, especially since, as Visconti said, normal 70s recording procedure would have been to maximize the use of these external players on a variety of sessions. Not so with Indiscreet. You could have made an entire pop album in those days for what get in the swing and looks, looks, looks cost. The music of Indiscreet was grandiose, and highfalutin, and Sparks wanted the album's cover to reflect the same. For the front sleeve, the band hired photographer Richard Creamer, who had accompanied the band on tour in the past. The chosen image for the front cover shows Ron and Russell, and only Ron and Russell, having just barely survived a single-engine airplane crash. Occupying a stretch of neighborhood street, Ron and Russell are in the foreground, the wreckage of a cherry red Cessna flyer just behind them. Beyond that, your typical mid-70s suburban home, flanked by healthy trees and a cloudless blue sky. The staged plane crash photo was actually shot outside a small airport in Burbank, California. As Russell explained in 2008, at least at the time they had an area where they stored planes that had been in mishaps, so somebody contacted them and we set up a kind of fake suburbia. And it was fake. A discerning eye will notice that the house on the album sleeve isn't an actual house at all. The entire background is a photograph printed on a flat cloth backdrop like the kind used in old Hollywood films. In the middle of the foreground, Russell sits prostrate with both legs extended and bent awkwardly. His left leg extends toward the camera over a piece of the plane wreckage, and his right leg is tucked behind him under another piece of wreckage. By the way he's grabbing his left leg, and with his slightly grimaced expression, we can infer that he's sustained an injury in the crash, although it's clearly not a matter of life and death. He wears a black flight jacket with epaulets, pristine khaki slacks, and a pair of preppy-looking blue deck shoes. 
A few paces to Russell's right stands an unscathed Ron, standing and surveying the scene with his hands on his hips in a gesture of bemusement. Clad in a tank-top undershirt tucked into his equally pristine slacks, his head is bent forward so that his brown fedora obscures his eyes, but the trademark toothbrush mustache is still fully visible. The scene on the whole appears to show a diverting day out for two moneyed playboys gone terribly wrong. The aircraft may be toast, and Russell's leg may be fractured, but most horrifyingly of all, for our two bourgeois heroes, one can imagine them thinking the whole spectacle splayed out all over for the neighbors to gawk and point fingers at. How gauche, indeed. How indiscreet. As with propaganda, the flip side of indiscreet sleeve shows the entire band, again, uh, as decidedly upper-class socialites, lounging poolside under a giant parasol and casually sipping Bloody Marys. Trevor White has just come from a game of tennis, Dinky Diamond reclines in his seersucker suit, and Ian Hampton sits with an arm propping up his torso, wrapped in whatever is playing on the screen of his state-of-the-art portable TV in front of him, all on a freshly manicured lawn. To the right, again, are Ron and Russell. Ron, looking smart in a white blazer and round sunglasses, is holding a horse by the bridle, gently turning the animal's head toward the camera. The horseman, of course, is Russell, chin up and decked out in full riding regalia, including a riding crop. In the background, we can see some palm trees that grow in clusters and stretch skyward. It suggests that this scene, too, may be taking place in the greater Los Angeles area, or at least somewhere along the West Coast. A separate photographer was chosen to take the back cover photo. Uh, Sparks enlisted Jared Mankiewicz, who had taken many photos for Island Records in the past and who also found a spot in L.A. to use for the photo shoot uh, inside a barn-like Hollywood studio, appropriately enough. Although he didn't make it onto the sleeve anywhere, Minkowitz also took a few more stills that day, with the entire band looking exaggeratedly officious in full LAPD uniform. Sparks manager John Hewlett later expressed regret that the latter uh, police uniform images weren't chosen for the back cover, since it was more immediately American-invoking. Compared to propaganda, Indiscreet was slow to come together, with Sparks staggering their U.S. tour over several months, work was done on the album whenever the band was back in England, between gigs. The album finally hit store shelves in October of 1975, nearly a full year since the release of Propaganda. Musically, it was, as Ron and Russ intended, a bold, expansive, genre-hopping suite of songs that confounded listener expectations at every turn like never before. So let's take a look at the songs of Indiscreet. Indiscreet opens with an imaginary widescreen panorama of a revolutionary war battle scene. The scrappy colonial army stands defiant and cocksure against a nervous and hesitant band of redcoats. The camera switches to a close-up and it sweeps across the faces of the American soldiers, all steely-eyed and filled to the brim with conviction. Ron's piano pulses out for B major chords and slow and steady quarter beats 
while a gentle, almost angelic, synth chord supports the piano from below. About every two bars, the music changes chords, still keeping that strict 4-4 and staying firmly in a major key. It's an uncharacteristically unfussy way to open a Sparks song and a Sparks album, but it's its very directness that makes the opening measures of Hospitality on Parade sound exactly like the anthem it's meant to be. A bit of compositional audaciousness shows up at the line, A Shot Around the World, when Ron switches from a B major to an A major and then right back to B. Assuming Ron generally composed the song in B major, he would have known that there's no A major chord in the key of B major. The closest harmonic neighbors would be either G minor or A sharp diminished. The move to A major is unexpected. Bold even. One day we'll have one extra coastline. Russell begins, more or less, uh, with braggadocious swagger in his tenor. We'll tire of the Atlantic. It's weird, though. Even though the song is definitely sang from the perspective of an American, Russell still can't shake that quasi-British accent. Now, as we'll see with the songs of 1976's Big Beat, apparently it took moving back to the U.S. and recording from there to shake the half-hearted Queen's English Russ had such a hard time ditching. When he reaches the soaring notes of the song's first chorus, We speak and we sing, or we speak and we sing. You can practically see the rows of flags waving all around Russell's cherubic face. When the song returns to the verses, backup vocals and falsetto from Russell again join in, as well as some irresistible syncopated hand claps. About halfway through, the song restarts with all the sonic bells and whistles built up since the first few notes. Um, and a handful of Russell singing various different counterpoints, and the welcome debut of Trevor White's bombastic guitar chords, adding muscle and rhythmic thrust to the rest of the song, which, having nowhere further to go, gradually fades out. On the surface, it does kind of feel like we've been here before. The maritime beat and lyrics... The lusty sing-along chorus, the rhythm guitar, butching up the song's second half, which eventually fades out, sounds quite similar to track three on Propaganda, Reinforcements, doesn't it? I wonder if Ron intended Hospitality to be a companion piece, or maybe a rejoinder to that earlier song. Reinforcements set a military march to paranoid lyrics about a troop commander who's worried his army is losing the upper hand in a skirmish. Hospitality on Parade sounds like the enemy blowing raspberries on the precipice of victory, and Ron's lyrics make very clear who the enemy, now our protagonist, is. Those damn American colonial Yankees. Here are the lyrics in full to Hospitality on Parade. Someday we'll have one extra coastline. We'll tire of the Atlantic. By then we'll be rid of your lot. A shot around the world will soon be shot. Will soon be shot. Till then, have some tea and tobacco. Hey, Jenny, meet your master. Be nice. Show him kindness and such. Be kind to our master. But a feeling is a brewing that we don't need any masters. Because we all can be a master and we all can be a king. We speak and we sing the way that you do and showed you our hospitality on parade. 
But now we are we. We're no longer you. Tara to that hospitality on parade. Today, you're going to find their descendants in places all around you. You are faced with the easiest task, how best to act a king when always treated like a king. Lunch counters and banks and the theater. Kind help right there to serve you. Men selling and girls selling too, and everyone's special. Well, we are all are someone special. Yes, we all are someone special. For we all are someone special where the customer is king. Whoever you are, whoever you bring, you'll find that hospitality on parade. However you look, you're always a king, wherever there's hospitality on parade. I'm special, you're special, he's special, she's special, we're all someone special, and I am the king. In Ron Mail's retelling of American history in this song, America's real manifest destiny wasn't to become history's great laboratory of democracy, but to stretch from coast to coast to become the world's greatest bastion of consumerism. The grand narrative of capitalist free enterprise has reached its glorious and inevitable climax in American society of the mid-1970s. Before every man, woman, and child, there lay an endless sea of consumer goods and in every shape, size, color, flavor, and speed you could ever ask for. As Russell concludes himself as he sings before the song's balls out second half, the customer is king. Sparks aren't just going for a musical statement of purpose to kick off indiscreet. This time around, the lyrics present the thesis for the overall theme of the album, too. Generally, indiscreet is a satire of American culture. And the point Ron returns to several times is that the United States' self-aggrandizing pomposity isn't just a feature of the country and of its citizens. It's kind of the whole damn point. Of America. As we'll see as the album unfolds, the America being spotlit across Indiscreet's 13 songs uh, isn't a cross section of all of American society. Now, it's a particular slice of society, specifically the well heeled, entitled, presumably all white, upper classes. They're songs about wasps. One can imagine when Ron is thumbing his nose at some of the characters in these songs that he has images of the hoity-toity upper-crust types that he and Russell grew up around in 1950s and 60s Los Angeles. This means that beneath the surface of just about every song on Indiscreet, even those that don't seem to be the least bit political, there's often a sneering posture from Ron and Russell towards their targets. This attitude is sure to find enthusiastic favor with established Sparks fans who are in on the joke. Others, like spoil sport rock critic Robert Criscow, have called the proceedings ill-humored and joyless. In my view, Indiscreet is the greatest and most quintessential Sparks experience of their pre-Marauder 70s output. Considering the music alone, Sparks pulls every trick they had up their collective sleeves up to that point. And while Indiscreet's restless genre hopping may feel jarring on a first listen, it doesn't take many more listens to find the unity and thematic focus holding everything together. Someday we 
we'll have one extra coastline We'll tire of the Atlantic By then we'll be rid of your lot A shot around the world will soon be shot, will soon be shot Until then have some tea and tobacco Hey Jenny, meet your master be nice, show him kindness and such Be kind to our master But the feeling is a fool That we don't need any masters Cause we all can be a master And we all can be a king We speak and we sing The way that you do And showed you our hospitality on parade But now we are we We're no longer you To alter that hospitality on parade Today you're gonna find their descendants In places all around you You're faced with the easiest task How best to act a king When always treated like a king Lunch counters at banks and the theatre Kind help right there to serve you Men selling and girls selling too And everyone special We all are someone special Yes, we all are someone special For we all are someone special Where the customer is king Whoever you are, whoever you bring You'll find that hospitality on parade However you look, you're always a king Wherever there's hospitality on parade Track two is Happy Hunting Ground. We're back to more conventional rock stylings with Happy Hunting Ground, a song which could have fit comfortably on either of the two most recent albums. 
Lyrically, Ron's on about sex as sport again, an evergreen topic for him, and our narrator could very well be the same nervous adolescent from Amateur Hour, but a few years down the road. This time, the setting is college life. In this particular instance, our young scholar is matriculating overseas, but it's girls he's got on the brain, not school. He reveals to us that he's been kicked out of his university for some unspecified reason, and while the freedom to go out and carouse 24-7 was nice at first, the getting just isn't as good as it was when he was enrolled, and he went back in his classes. If you think about it, it's almost like Ron took that dad joke about studying abroad and wrote a three-minute song about it. Happy hunting ground, happy hunting ground, they don't talk or act like you do. Happy hunting ground, happy hunting ground. No, they sure don't look like you. Who, what, when, where, and why every day. Identify every disease. I drew a blank in my language, and Latin and Spanish and Greek. Thrown out, thrown out, so happy at first. I danced till I wore out my shoes. Now I'm in trouble, I know it. Please let me back into school. Back in the happy hunting ground, we're all around our fair, fair game. I need the happy hunting ground, because all around it's not the same. How to say it and not to offend? Well, you're still inside. It's okay. As soon as a girl leaves the refuge, out go the reason they're great. Hips are spreading and never a smile. They always demand that they drive. Well, I've got to get back inside there, back where at least they're alive. Happy hunting ground, happy hunting ground. They can sort of dance like you do. Happy hunting ground, Happy hunting ground, happy hunting ground, but they just can't last like you. Some are coming to learn how to read, others to learn how to write, but I want a better selection. It's larger, but poorer outside. It's fair, fair game inside. Happy hunting ground. Okay. It's fair, fair game inside. And he repeats that several times. Happy Hunting Ground was composed in G major without a lot of surprises harmonically. Happy Hunting Ground looks like it was composed in G major uh, without a whole lot of harmonic surprises. Rhythmically, Ron is up to some familiar tricks, switching time signatures for the chorus uh, and for the It's Fair Fair Game Inside breakdown at the song's middle eight. It may sound like faint praise to call Happy Hunting Ground your typical mid-70s rock song by Sparks, but considering how high they've set that bar, it really isn't. Dinky Diamond remains the band's not-so-secret weapon, seamlessly joining together the song's different pieces, and there's a fun call-and-response between Trevor White's guitar and Ron's electric piano. Two embellishments that distinguish the song from earlier, similar rockers. There's... A couple of string players supporting the bass with steady, rhythmic thrusts throughout the verses. And it sounds like that's a Moog Ron's using to mimic a fox hunter's trumpet call. Now, side note, I know fox hunting is a typically British endeavor, not American. Eh, whatever. There's also a cool blink-and-you-miss-it moment at 2.54 when Russell takes in a loud, sharp breath of air before belting out the chorus once more. That's a nice bit of intensity to his quivering tenor. Let's have a listen to Happy Hunting Ground. Happy hunting ground, happy hunting ground They don't talk or act like you do Happy hunting ground, happy hunting ground No, they sure don't
when we're alive every day I justify every disease I drew a blank in my language I'm Latin and Spanish and Greek Go back to the cabaret with song three without using hands. Built mostly around Ron's playful piano stylings, without using hands tells the story of an American family showing off slides from their recent trip to Paris. Everything about the slide presentation seems to reflect your typical suburban American family holiday until it becomes quite clear that the family had survived a terrorist bomb attack while staying at the Ritz Hotel. Although the entire family emerged unscathed, it seems the hotel's manager had his hands blown off. The canopy over the main doorway of the Ritz Hotel 
had served as a very large umbrella when the May rains fell. Still, the men of Paris glistened and their ladies did as well. As long as their powder was dry, there'd be some heterosexual thrills, with or without the protection of the Paris Ritz Hotel. And every single Parisian will love tonight without using hands. And these are the slides that Mary took when we were overseas. Oh, look at the funny little Frenchman with some French company. There's the Ritz Hotel where me and Mary stayed a couple of days. Jerry, let go of your sister. What is wrong with you today? Sit over there with your mother and let's sing La Marseillaise. The only way children are punished, unlike old times, is without using hands. Oh, what a lovely city, 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 city. Oh, what a lovely city, city, city. Repeat a few times. Oh, are you willing to go? How about letting me know? Without using hands. When the explosion rocked the lobby of the Ritz Hotel, nobody moved for fear of learning that they weren't all that well. Is there anybody missing? Answer only if you're well. Everyone cheered the good fortune, for indeed it turned out well. Only the manager suffered, but at least his face looks well. The manager is going to live his entire life without using hands, without using hands. Without using hands is one of Ron Mayle's very best black comedies. Obviously, the joke isn't that a Frenchman had his hands blown off in an outrageous Python-esque fashion, although it's, it is pretty morbidly funny. It's that the American tourists never drop their American tourist nests. They remain detached spectators all the way up to passively watching images from their own vacation, like they're glossing through the pages of a National Geographic. Musically, the song is somewhat minimalist in keeping with Ron's small bore slice of life lyrics. It's the same sort of angular, whimsical bit of Weimar era pop found all over Sparks's uh, early work. Nothing is sacred, or um, perhaps Equator from 1974. The canopy over the main doorway of the Ritz Hotel had served as a very large umbrella when the May rains fell. Still, the men of Paris christened and the ladies did as well. As long as the powder was dry, there'd be some heterosexual thrills, with or without the protection of the Paris Ritz Hotel. And these are the slides that Mary took when we were overseas. Oh, look at the funny little Frenchman with some French company. Jerry, let go of your sister. What is wrong with you today? Sit over there with your mother and let's sing La Marseillaise. The only way children are punished, unlike old times, is without using hands. Thank you. 
on the explosion, rock the lobby of the Ritz Hotel. Oh, nobody move for fear of burning that they won't. All that well is there anybody missing? Answer only if you're well. Everyone share the good fortune, for indeed it turned out well. Only the manager suffered, but at least his face looks well. The manager's going to live his entire life without using hands. 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 As the drums come galloping in from the distance, it's clear very early on that Song 4 is taking us into brand new territory for a Sparks song. Get in the Swing is one of two centerpieces of Indiscreet that advertise just how far Sparks are willing to go outside of their comfort zone for their newest album. It was also released as the album's first single, some three months before the album itself. If the album's opening song had a widescreen cinematic sound, Get In The Swing occupies an entire football stadium. Literally. After arranging for the appropriate instruments, Tony Visconti hired a squad of outside musicians to replicate the sound of a high school marching band. I'm not sure exactly how many parts are being played in total, but it's easy to make out a bunch. Um, I'll just list the different instruments that I can hear with my own ears, um, and then consider that Island Records probably paid a different musician to perform each corresponding part. Uh, you got a bass drum, a tenor drum, snare drum, cymbals, trumpet, trombone, sousaphone or a tuba, French horn, uh, piccolo, flute, xylophone, or glockenspiel, um, and it's probably more than that. Uh, but that's not it. Get in the Swing takes a musical detour at two points in the song. At about 1 minute 14 seconds in, the marching band rests for a quieter interlude led by a violin and Ron's piano. Before the song's final climax, that interlude is repeated, but instead we've got a church organ and some choral singers. I would love to pick Visconti's brain to find out how many scores he had to write, how long it took to write, how long it took to record, and how many musicians he hired, and how much did it cost the label. But when he said entire albums were being made for the amount of money it cost to record one track on Indiscreet, Get In The Swing is Exhibit A. Just from what I can gather from guitar tabs found online, the song seems to be composed mostly in B major again, like Hospitality on Parade, and with that similar feint to A major uh, that uh, is used in that song. Uh, talking of writing out arrangements, uh, Visconti admitted that his job was made easier by the fact that Ron was so good at visualizing and communicating the parts that he heard in his head uh, for other players to play. 
It's a shame Ron never properly studied music, Visconti told Daryl Easley, because he could probably be a killer string arranger. The song's lyrics aren't terribly direct, although there are hints that the swing and get in the swing is a reference to the swinger subculture gaining popular exposure at that time where couples would casually swap out partners for sex. The 70s man. Gotta love it. Get in the swing, pal. Get in the swing with everybody and everything. My friends are here. Mind if you go out and not come back again? Well, thanks a lot. Well, hooray, hooray. The night is younger than the girl who's got the touch, but not by much. Well, I ain't no Freud. I'm from L.A. But I know certain things that they also serve who sit and wait. They're cheaper than paintings and don't need explaining. When salmon spawn, a ton of water blocks their motion, spoils their game, but on they go, thrashing till their mission is fulfilled or else. Oh, but they have their friends and have a warm bed waiting, just like I do with you. I'm happy. So happy. I'm happy. Oh, happy. Chorus repeats. Get in the swing. All for one, one for all. Hello down there. This is your creator with a questionnaire. Hello up there. I don't have time to fill out questionnaires. Those last few lines have Russell having a dialogue with himself, portraying both the narrator and God Almighty himself in heaven. Even though the marching band puts down their instruments and light beams down from heaven, a choir of angels sing, etc., etc., God himself asks for just a moment of the narrator's time. But our guy just can't stop, won't stop. He's just too busy swinging. At about the same time Sparks released Get in the Swing, label mates Roxy Music came out with a similarly hedonistic-themed uh, song. Love is the Drug was also about a perpetually randy disco-dancing playboy, although that song was recorded as a modern disco number instead of the postmodern anti-rock, anti-funk of Sparks' single. Released in July 1975, Get in the Swing was the lowest charting single of Sparks' career as a British band, claiming no higher than 27 on the UK singles chart. But it kept them on the airwaves and on TV. On the whole, Sparks, Visconti, and Island Records were a bit disappointed by the single's lukewarm reception. The prevailing interpretation was that the song was just too weird, too far left field for mainstream audiences. Yet, Get In The Swing dropped in the wake of another far left field hit, Queen's legendary barn burner, Bohemian Rhapsody. A decade later, Dinky Diamond offered his two pence. I guess Ron just wasn't obvious enough. If he called it California Rhapsody or something and... Had Island make a big fuss about it, who knows where it could have gone. The UK 7-inch release showed Ron and Russell on the front sleeve, standing in front of a cinema marquee for a Marx Brothers movie. Some versions of the single faded the song out 30 seconds earlier than the album version. The B-side in every territory was the outtake profile. I'm going to break with precedent and save that song for the next episode, as Indiscreet had an unusually large number of outtakes, and I'd rather examine them all at once. Sparks performed Get In The Swing on Top Of The Pops, Supersonic, The Bay City Rollers uh, hosted Shangalang, and showed up 
on a couple of music programs on European television as well. I didn't find any American TV appearances to promote the song. If there were any that you happen to know about and you're listening, please drop me a line and I'll correct that in a future episode. For their appearance on T.O.P.T., there was no visible marching band, so the five-piece rock band had to sell the lie that it was just a handful of rock musicians making that enormous sound. But the show's audience knew how to suspend disbelief, and all eyes would be on Ron and Russell at any rate. Russell dressed down for the stage about as much as he could without shedding his black shirt, which he wore open down to his flat belly. Beneath that, he sported suggestively short shorts of the same color and wore nothing on his feet whatsoever. No shoes, no sandals, nothing. Appropriate for a summer appearance, he looked like he was having a day out at the beach. Ron, meanwhile, crouched behind his keyboard, wore a white jacket that could have doubled as a lab coat, even sported a name badge pinned above his right breast. You can imagine Ron as Russ's pharmacist, who was there to dispense medications to treat whatever STD Russell's stage persona had picked up. Here's getting the swing.
In episode five, I relayed the story of the string quartet players showing up to the studio in their own separate Rolls Royces, recording their parts and all departing in that same manner. That was for the song Here Comes Bob on 1972's A Woofer and Tweeter's Clothing. No word from Bisconti or anyone else if that's how these guys got around, but Tony Bisconti hired another string quartet for the song on this album, Under the Table with Her, a brief, flowery waltz that Mozart might have scribbled together to meet a deadline. Ron, in fact, did specifically tell Bisconti that he wanted the song to resemble Mozart. Whereas the sound of Get in the Swing was expansive and brash, Under the Table is petite and intimate. Both tunes, however, hearken to the past and consciously avoid all things rock and roll. Now, here, Ron has given us a song about dogs. And Russell sings from a dog's perspective. Not just any dogs, these may be the two most spoiled dogs on the planet, happily gobbling up morsels of food passed down to them beneath their rich owner's dining table. It's amusing to hear Russell's delicately lilting intonations coming off as effete and entitled, as we imagine the dog's human owners must be. Now, there's nothing here to specifically carry the album's theme about the remorseless audacity of being American, um, as the music in this song is decidedly European, um, but it's yet another social commentary about society's upper crust and about conspicuous consumption. Furthermore, it's pretty easy to imagine a McMansion in Beverly Hills as the song setting, especially if you've seen the capacity for Americans to treat their pets better than they treat one another. Nobody misses diminutive offspring, not when there's big wigs there, there. Dinner for twelve is now dinner for ten, cause I'm under the table with her. I give a yelp and they throw me a cutlet. Somebody pats her hair. Hair. Everyone's nice to the subhuman species. I'm under the table with her. People all around the world are having only rice and beans. Two of them should come and take the place of Laura Lee and me. 
Oh, check out Ron's quick spoken word cameo as a butler the second time Russell sings Dinner for Twelve. You'll hear him go, Dinner for Twelve? Thank you. It's a cute touch. Here is Under the Table with her. Diminutive offspring Not when there's big wigs There, there Dinner for twelve is now dinner for ten Cause I'm under the table with her I feel a yelp and they throw me a cutlet Somebody pats her hair Everyone's nice to the subhuman species I'm under the table with her People all around the world are having only rice and tea Do a bitch and come and take the piece of your on me Nobody misses diminutive offspring Not when there's big wigs there They are dinner for twelve is now dinner for ten Cause I'm under the table with her I'm under the table with her People all around the world are having only rice and tea that should come and take the place of Laura Lee on me. Oh, nobody misses diminutive offspring. Not when there's big quakes there, there. Dinner for twelve is now dinner for ten. Cause I'm under the table with her. I'm under the table. I'm under the table. I'm under the table with her. The sixth and final song on Indiscreet Side A is How Are You Getting Home, another one of Ron's mini epics that sounds like four wildly divergent songs into one. The lyrics are pretty self-explanatory. Ron's unlucky in love lonely guy persona starts off subtly offering a ride home to an attractive lady at a party uh, that seems to be wrapping up. Either after being rebuffed or while precluding the object of his ardor from declining by not letting her get a word in edgewise, our desperate narrator repeats himself with ultimately alarming urgency. The music starts off like your typical slow rock ballad in A major, but after just 18 seconds in, it switches to a quick tempo herky-jerky rock rave up while holding E7. Now, E7 is the dominant 7 of A major, and it badly wants to resolve to A to relieve the tension inherent in the chord. But this song just won't have it, and instead distracts us with a new section in E major, with no real beat or rhythm provided, just a few jolting thwacks on Dinky's drums once per bar, and then after that... We go back to A major and the original slow rock beat 
lulling us into a false sense of security. As you might imagine, however, the band spends the remainder of the song toggling back and forth between these three musical motifs, as well as a middle eight that's mostly Ron banging out two alternating piano chords and Russell demanding at the top of his voice to know, just how are we getting home? How Are You Getting Home is another classical example of Sparks as musical marmite. If you've got a taste for it, this song is exhilarating. For everyone else, expect to feel motion sick by the end of the song's three minutes. It's a dizzying way to close out the first side of an LP. Ah, here are Ron's full lyrics. Listen and just imagine being that poor girl on the receiving end of these. How are you getting home? It's on my way, so let me take you home. Home, home, sweet home. How are you getting home? How are you getting home? How are you getting home? I'm curious. No, I'm really only curious. How are you getting home? Get away from here. Let's get away from here. I hope you live a million miles away. I could take you halfway home tonight. Tomorrow you'll be home. Tell me how you're getting home. We got one good thing. We got one thing in common, baby. We're too good to be at this party. We're too good to be anywhere but inside my car. How are you getting home? It's on my way, so let me take you home. Home, home sweet home. Don't let me push you, baby. What I like is your independence. Real spunk, real independence. And there's my car. How are you getting home? It's on my way, so let me take you home. Home, home sweet home. What a creepo, huh?
that's where we're going to leave things for today. Um, I'll be back with part two of Indiscreet in a few weeks, which will also delve into the various outtakes recorded during the Indiscreet sessions in 1975. Some of those lingered on the cutting room floor for decades, and it's a real testament to just how deep Ron and Russ's creative streak ran during the island years to hear the unwaveringly high quality of uh, those songs that didn't make it to the album. Now, that episode will also close out the quote-unquote classic period of Sparks, which ended when Ron and Russ cut the rest of the band loose and left to try to stake a claim for themselves in New York City. I want to thank you guys for listening. If you want to drop me a line, please do so at sparkspodcast at gmail.com or visit my Facebook page. I also encourage you to check out the Sparks fan group Indiscreet on Facebook. As I switch off the studio lights in here, I'm going to leave you all with an interview with Sparks on Finnish TV from October 21, 1975. Now, if you can't understand Finnish, then shame on you. Kidding, 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 kidding. Anyway, at least Ron and Russell respond to all the questions in English. And Russell's really going at a chocolate cake in the video. Stay well and take care, my friends. I rest my case, Your Honor. Okay. Well, in several interviews, in several interviews, you said that being a conservative is fashionable at the moment. And how do you define this conservatism, which you seem to be into? Well, the the whole thing of change uh, is a bit of the past. Everybody was all idealistic and and opting for change. Now the thing to opt for is, is uh, I don't know what there, there really isn't anything that you can be in favor of. Uh, kind of the age of idealism and all, that's all over. You know? Now it's something else. I don't know what else it is, mm-hmm. but, but it isn't, it's a conservative time. It isn't, yeah, it isn't just well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, you know. Well, when you use a word like conservatism, uh, you, could you define it? I don't. I'm not meaning it in in political terms. Mm-hmm. I'm meaning it in a. I don't mean anything in political terms. The least thing we are I mean, has anything to do with relating to politics. But I mean it in a general sort of way. That there was a period when people thought that anything was possible, and now. Anything's possible, but it doesn't really matter. So uh, that whole age of idealism and all is so. hedonism—that's the new movement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, it is. Honestly, I, w- I wasn't kidding. And he knows. Mm-hmm. Just pleasure. Pure hedonism. A piece of chocolate cake. Does Europe have something special more to offer than the United States? There's a definite feel about, I mean, you can't say it about Europe as a whole, but about each particular individual country that, that America doesn't have. Each country has a different feel and different atmosphere uh, that you won't find in the States. Is, is Finland considered part of Europe in a Finnish person's mind? Yes. It is. It is. That's good, because that's the way we felt as well. Okay. Now, how is that uh, film project with uh, Jack Tati? Oh, 
Well, lost there. the cake. You got it. Did you get it? Did That's you get a film it? project. That Did is. Did you get it? Cake sign. <laughs> what do you do? Our our film project with Tati is could relate to that cake. What just happened? To it. <laughs> it's just fallen to bits. Um, well, it's just slid downhill. It's a little. slid downhill. It's still valid. The chocolate cake is still valid. It could just, come back together again. Just as our project with Jack Tati could come back together again. But right at the moment, Tati's had a serious illness and he's had to undergo an operation and he is convalescing and right in his convalescence he's writing a book um and in the future <clears throat> if he does make another film in his lifetime will figure in his plans but right at the moment he he's not certain whether he's going to make another film or not 